Hello and welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore. So good to be with you this week for a bonus episode of Let's Pod This because, well, folks, this week the legislative session kicked off formally. It began yesterday, which was Monday, February 5th, with the governor's State of the State address. This was Governor Stitt's sixth um, State of the State address. That is always the official beginning of the legislative session. And um, so this episode is going to be a little bit different. I know many of you listened to last week's episode with uh, Shannon Fleck, Reverend Dr. Shannon Fleck from the Oklahoma Faith Network. And we heard really great feedback from you all that we learned a lot about Shannon and we didn't have enough time to talk about uh, about white uh, white Christian nationalism, which was actually our main focus for the episode. Uh, and so I just saw Shannon in the hallway a few minutes ago and we are already brainstorming a follow-up continuation episode of that conversation. And I think it's particularly relevant because I'll be honest, I walked away from yesterday's State of the State address feeling, uh, I don't know, feeling weird, feeling uncomfortable with the amount of like religiosity in the conversation. And this is this is not an attack on Christianity by any means or any other religion for that matter. This is a concern, right? Like a, a legitimate concern about the enmeshment, the deepening of the enmeshment between our political system and our religious institutions, particularly one religion over others. Uh, you know, our country has long held a separation of church and state. It was by some of the framers of the U.S. Constitution. Uh, way back in the late 1700s. This is not a new conversation. It is a recurring conversation. And uh, I've all, this all dovetails together. I've been reading um, Democracy Awakening by Heather Cox Richardson the last couple of weeks, and she really does an excellent job of connecting the dots and drawing the through line from the, you know, the Constitution, the, the conditions in the 1700s with uh, you know, rampant slavery here in the colonies up through, you know, the 1850s and 1860s, the Civil War into the 1920s and 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s, that time and time and time and time again, America is confronted with political leaders who have sought to marry their religion, Christianity, with a sense of nationalism, right? So this goes beyond pride as an American. This is a sense of um, expectation or belief that America is superior, morally superior and otherwise, to any other country or any other group of people. And in particular, this conversation has always been framed through the lens of, well, honestly, of like white property-owning people in America being better than everybody else, if I can be blunt. Um, I know many of you don't believe that to be the case. Surely in 2024, that belief would be more broadly held. But, you know, even over the last few years, we have seen uh, an increase in domestic terrorism, in hate speech and hate groups being active. Uh, And so when we sit down at the conference table here in the office with some colleagues to watch the governor's state of the state address. And in a, you know, roughly 40 minute speech, he makes religious references about once every five minutes. Um, my antennas go up. My spidey sense is tingling. Um, I get wary, right? And this is not the first time. And this is not the only time, right? Going, going back in history, we've had plenty of political leaders who were men of faith, right? And women of faith. Um, Abraham Lincoln, right? In his second inaugural address, which you may know is one of my favorite speeches. It's pretty brief, but it was it's the one that's inscribed on the north wall of the Lincoln Memorial that is uh, was delivered in the midst of the Civil War. And he in there, uh, you know, says something to the effect of like, may each of us um, do what is right as far as God can show us what is right. Um, so often though, I think leaders like Lincoln or Martin Luther King or anybody else leans on or, you know, um, finds strength in their own religious journey because it is a a position of peace for them. 
and that it's very personal for them, and it is done in like a humble way. But what we're seeing today, which is not unlike what we saw in the 1920s and 30s in Germany, or the 1950s um, and 60s here in America, a leaning on faith in a position of power, right? To like say, we are justified in exerting power over other people because we believe that we are uh, morally superior to them or that some deity has given us, right? Again, that, you know, God has given us the right to have a dominion over these people or this country or whatever. Uh, And so I'll be honest, the governor's speech this week had a little bit of both in there. Um, So what I'm going to do first in this episode is play a few clips. I took the time to go through the speech and like edit out every or cut down to every reference, uh, every religious reference that he had. I think I may have missed a couple, but I've got most of them. So I'll play each of those, maybe with a brief comment or two from me. And then if you want to listen to the speech in its entirety, I will include the entire speech at the end as well, right? So you can hear it all in context. But I wanted to kind of go through and highlight this because I think it changes how you hear not only the governor's rhetoric, but it changes how we hear rhetoric from politicians at all levels uh, in our state. So I will, again, just reiterate that this is, I think, an uncomfortable conversation for me to have and maybe for you to listen to. And the reason I think it's important, right, is I'm someone who grew up in the church like many of you. I went, in fact, went to college to be a minister and um, have no problems with anyone's individual expression of faith. The thing that I think that resonates with me is that if we listen to this speech um, and we heard it, the same conversation coming from someone of a different faith, it would feel differently, right? Um, Whether that person is Hindu or Buddhist or Muslim or Jewish or anything else, having a leader so emphatically express not just their own personal faith, but a desire for the state to be tied to and express the same religion feels wrong. Like it is icky and weird. So um, if you do feel uncomfortable, and I apologize, but maybe that's the point, right? And sit with it, stew on it, see how you feel. Um, Talk to your friends, your spouse, your loved ones, kids even about it and get their opinions. Um, I think we, particularly in Oklahoma, are used to this um, marrying of religion and politics. And I don't think that's healthy for our state. I don't think it's healthy for our country, if I'm being honest. Uh, We will certainly talk more about this in subsequent episodes, but just for this one speech, we'll start here. Well, on that note, I'm going to fade out and we're going to come back with uh, some selections from the governor's State of the State address. First off, I want to give thanks to my Heavenly Father for allowing me to serve in this position and for all the blessings that he has for our great state. Okay, so from the beginning, it sounds pretty normal, right? He's expressing his own personal appreciation and thankfulness um, to you know his deity for being in this role. That's what we would hear from a athlete after they win the Super Bowl or anybody like we all you know thank our lucky stars, thank God, thank heaven, thank Allah, whatever it is. That's a pretty normal, benign statement, I would think. In First Corinthians twelve fourteen, Paul talks about the body of Christ. And he's talking about referring to the church, but I think the lessons also apply here in this building. Okay, so this is a little bit weirder. Paul was very directly talking about the church. It was a letter written to the church at Corinth about how they get along and how they need to focus and work together. It was not at all about government. So for him to, uh, the governor's trying to say, like, we should work together. He could have said that without leaning on the Apostle Paul in his letter to the church at Corinth. This seems like a bit of a stretch, and it seems it just feels like a, like a clear effort to like inject religiosity into a speech when it doesn't need to be there. I want to highlight Gail and Mike Priest. They are founders of the 99 Plus One Foundation. 
They renovated an old nursing home into a home for young women aging out of the foster care system. Their guiding scripture is Matthew 18, 14. Even so it is not, even so it is the will of your father, which is in heaven, that not one of these little ones should perish. They truly have a heart for the Lord and they are teaching young women that their future can be better than their present. This section comes very close after his last quote. So already we've quoted scripture twice in the first like five minutes. I don't know much about this organization. I've just Googled them a little bit. Um, But of all the organizations in this state that are working on making the world better, protecting, um, you know, folks who might be vulnerable, it seems unusual, suspicious to cite one small nonprofit that is religious based. Um, And from what I've read on their website, they seem to be a very conservative, very religious organization. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying this is a weird place in the speech for it. We know hope is not a speech or a government program, and that's why we started BeANeighbor.org to connect people in need with churches and nonprofits in their community. I'll be honest, I had never heard of BeANeighbor.org until this speech, and it's funny to me because if you go to the website, it automatically redirects to BeANeighbor.ok.gov, which is a government website, right? So when he says, we don't need another government program, but we did create a government website that basically is like a link to other nonprofits and churches. He makes a point to point out on that website. I counted up. There's only 69 uh, organizations listed, some churches, some nonprofits. Some of them are based in other states, Idaho, Texas, Arkansas. Some of them are based here. Some of them are national associations. There's not really anything the website does other than give you a link to their website. Uh, and you can kind of search by category. There's a lot of these like clearinghouse websites like this. Um, I think clearly it's in the speech so he can like tout that they did something when they didn't really do anything. That's a pretty normal political thing to do. But his emphasis on the word churches before nonprofits in his pitch, I think, uh, adds up to something important in the context of the rest of the speech. Hope comes from hard work because we know that we are designed by our creator to work, to provide for our families, and to contribute to society. Well, if you're looking for the meaning of life, here Governor Stitt has told us that God created all of us to work and to provide for our families. And if you don't have a family, I guess you just have to work. That's your purpose in life. I take umbrage with this in several ways, um, but I do think his use of, or his connection of working and essentially like purpose and goodness is part of a larger narrative that you will hear throughout the speech. Excessive government intervention encourages people to look to government programs instead of personal responsibility. Ah, see, I told you he was going to come back to this, that if you can't work that you, and you need a government program, then you are less than right. And this is, uh, this is like a broader problematic conversation, this old bootstraps thing where some folks have situations where that is not the case. More importantly, almost everyone who receives government assistance is also working. Like many state programs require you to work. And and just because you work and you are still poor doesn't make you bad, right? There's nothing. A lot of this language is just, God gets under my skin. There are plenty of people who work hard, work their asses off. And still, because of the economy, because of lots of policies, they can't get ahead, despite how hard they work. That does not make them bad. There's a school of thought called the success sequence that really outlines three simple steps to combat poverty. Number one, graduate from high school. Number two, get a job. Number three, get married before having kids. That's it. Those three things are a surefire way to keep families out of poverty. Well, there you go, folks. We should wrap up right here. If you went to high school and you got a job and you waited to have kids, you should not be in poverty, right? That's all it takes. The success doctrine or whatever this is. No, if you Google this, this um, is a longstanding kind of conservative talking point, right? And the it's interesting that it starts with something that's factual. Yes, education is 
highly correlated with earning potential across the lifespan. But then it ends with essentially a moral postulate, right? That people should wait to have kids. Um, well, in some cases, right, in a state like ours where there are, uh, we have outlawed abortion for all reasons, there are people who will have children in the state who don't want them and are legally unable to obtain an abortion to change that, right? It, the government has taken away individual freedom of choice in those cases. And just because you graduate high school and get a job doesn't magically unlock the path to wealth. There are millions of people who work really hard and, you know, hours, 40 hours, 50 hours, 60 hours a week and are not wealthy. That, the boiling it down to these three points is not just like factually wrong. It is, I think, morally hurtful to people saying, oh, well, if you went to high school and you got a job and you didn't have kids or you waited, you should be fine. That is not the case. In fact, our state has refused to raise the minimum wage for 30 years, right? There's a proposed ballot initiative right now um, waiting before the court that would do that. And that that one thing alone would be a huge help to people who are trying to get ahead. We can also better better fund our public schools and give people not just a diploma, but like a truly good education when they're in high school. We know that the best preventer of poverty is a married mom living in, a married parents living in, a, in the home. So we became the first state in the nation to declare family month this past November. That's the culture we're promoting here in Oklahoma, and we know it works. Okay. Okay. This is also factually wrong on several points and morally questionable in the broader sense. I'll leave it at that. Because we know God gave kids to their parents, not to the government. Okay. I don't, I don't think anyone, you can believe how the children arrived however you want, right? I think, I mean, miracles happen every day. Great. I have plenty of friends who have had children against the odds, against science, you know, against like, that appears to be truly miraculous. And that's fantastic, right? But I don't think anybody believes that any children are given to the government. Like that's not, (laughs) the government's not a person. The government exists to be a force for good, right? To lift up those um, who have been dealt a bad hand. Government is not inherently bad. It could be, it should be a force for good. Ronald Reagan said this, there are no easy answers, but they're simple answers. We must have the courage to do what we know is morally right. Ronald Reagan said a lot of things. Some were good, some were bad. I personally love his quotes about gerrymandering, that it's un-American and undemocratic, and it is an abomination. I would love to hear the governor quote Reagan on gerrymandering. That would be a policy conversation and like, and I think morally right. <laughs> I would say we might align on that. Uh, Reagan also famously did not mention AIDS. I don't think at all during his two terms, right? Um, the first cases of HIV infection in America were in 1981, and Reagan actively and continuously refused to even say the term AIDS, or HIV for that matter, for years and years, I think maybe forever. Um, as someone who worked in the HIV community for the better part of a decade, those wounds are still there. I have friends who were diagnosed in the early 80s and were desperate for the government to do something then, for the government to be a force for good and to stand up, and they didn't do it. Also, we can have a whole separate podcast about Reaganomics, and about the, and we probably will have one about the rise of the Christian right and the conservative coalition and um, Falwell and all of this stuff that happened in conjunction with Reagan's rise to power. Again, if you want to go read 
or listen to Democracy Awakening by Heather Cox Richardson. It's on Spotify. That's where I found it. I knew about her, but the book is included if you subscribe to Spotify. Um, She talks a lot about it. It's fascinating. She does a great job. Okay, well, we're up to several mentions of God already. I've lost track. I'll have a total I'll have a total count at the end of the show. And as I conclude today, I want to declare, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. This line in particular felt out of place in the speech. Uh, even when I was watching live. And if you go back and read the text of the speech, which I'll link in the show notes, um, it definitely reads like a group project where a lot of people contributed and they copied and pasted it in. It really lacks a unifying flow. Uh, Grammatics, you know, critiques aside, this part kind of came out of nowhere. Um, and the the fact that it he said it like was a little jarring to those of us in the room watching it. It's also really interesting if you read the text, the transcript of it, which I assume was like his pre, the pre-written speech, the written word says, as for me and my state, we will serve the Lord. The governor said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, which is a quote from the Bible. But it interesting that someone put that in the written word, and that's not what he said. I'm very curious why that change was made. Maybe he saw it on the teleprompter and just like defaulted to the common, the more common phrase, like from the actual quote from the Bible. Or maybe he knew or someone knew that like, if he said for me and my state, that might be pushing the envelope too far. Now that's a little silly, I think, because in his, one of his inaugural addresses, right? Like he said something effective, like I claim all 77 states for, you know, God, um, which you can't do. That's not how that works, but uh, you can say it, but it doesn't make it true. Anyway, this just felt really like bizarre. It just felt out of life. This is a very personal declaration, and it seems weird to do this in a speech that is ostensibly supposed to be about the state of our state for him to talk about himself. And that's why I think had he said, you know, as for me and my state, we will serve the Lord, like mm, there's a whole lot of Oklahomans who disagree with that, right? who are of other faiths or no faiths or who just don't want their government to tell them who and what to believe, right? We had a whole hump and war about this with England. We declared our independence from the country where the king is viewed as the the moral authority, the 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 father of the church, the head of the church. Americans from the beginning said we don't want that. That we want to leave that up to individuals. And I don't want a king, a governor, a president, a county commissioner, a city council member, a dog catcher. I don't want anyone telling me what to believe, right? It's up to me. And this speech, time and time again, really encroaches on that freedom. I'm calling on our businesses to serve God in the marketplace. (laughs) Okay. Our churches to serve God and people in their communities. Our government officials to serve God by acting righteously and serving without partiality. We're making sure the next generation can live out their American dream, their Oklahoma dream. So let's go. God bless you. And may God continue to bless the great state of Oklahoma. Thank you very much. Have a great session. All right. I'll say this at the end someday. If I'm governor, there's an excellent chance that I'm going to end a speech by saying, God bless you and God bless the great state of Oklahoma. I, why? Mostly out of tradition, because we've been saying that for 248 years. The, the, and I always feel a little uncomfortable about it increasingly. I've, in fact, I have ended speeches with that phrase before inside the Capitol myself, and it always feels a little weird because I have a lot of friends who don't believe in God. I myself am really unsure, <laughs> to be honest. I question this quite a bit. Uh, and But I hope that in that sentence, that sentiment, maybe the maybe there's some forgiveness for the like generality of how you say it, right? 
But let's go back just a minute, right? Totally makes sense to call on churches to like serve God. But we're to put it in the state of the state speech, right? Again, it is not the governor's job to be the priest of our state or the pastor of our state. It is, uh, why tell churches what to do? That seems very odd. The churches play a role in our communities, but they don't, they're not a government entity at all. They distinctly prohibited from being a government entity. The, the calling on businesses to serve God in the marketplace is like a weird Frankenstein sentence marrying like George Willian economics with, uh, you know, prayer of Jabez mega church, you know, pop Christianity bullshit. I'm a little surprised he didn't just summarize his speech by saying, live, laugh, love, cut taxes, praise Jesus. All right, let's go to the numbers. The word God was used six times during that speech. Church also used four times. Bless or blessed also for Lord and Christ each used twice and pray and faith each used one time each during that speech. All right, well, that essentially brings us to the end of the episode. Uh, We'll have another episode later this week with Dr. James Davenport from Rose State College. We'll talk about a lot of things, and I anticipate we'll discuss the economic policy discussed during the State of the State address more than the religious imagery. Um, And as we say every week, right, decisions are made by those who show up. That is particularly true right now because there's an election next week week on Tuesday, February 13th. Celebrate your love for democracy by going to vote the day before Valentine's Day. If you live in a lot of the state, you probably have a school board race. If you live in uh, House District 39 in Edmond, you also have a state legislative race. Um, It's very important. If you are unsure if you have an election in your area, you can always go to the election board website, elections.ok.gov, put in your name and date of birth, and it'll tell you If you have an election, what's on the ballot, you can view a sample ballot, you can find your polling place, all that goodness. If you do, you can vote early next week, uh, excuse me, this week on the 8th and 9th um, at your county election board or next Tuesday in person. If you've requested an absentee ballot, you gotta turn it in before election day. If you haven't requested it, it's too late. Now you've gotta vote in person one way or the other. It's very important that you vote this year. We have elections in February, March, April, August, June, August, and November. Lots of opportunities to do your civic duty, uh, play a role in shaping our government, shaping the future of our state. Listeners, it's up to you. This is also a good time to remind your friends and neighbors that need to register to vote. Ask them, help them register, so we can all be ready to turn out at the next election. All right, here comes the speech. Lieutenant Governor Matt Pinnell, Mr. Speaker, Mr. President Pro Tem, and members of the 59th Legislature, members of the judiciary, statewide elected officials, thank you so much for your service to our great state. Tribal leaders, to my cabinet, thank you guys so much for serving the state with such distinction. Such an honor to serve with you. To my wife, Sarah, the greatest first lady in the country. To my children who are with me today, and my son-in-law. And most importantly, to my fellow Oklahomans. First off, I want to give thanks to my Heavenly Father for allowing me to serve in this position and for all the blessings that He has for our great state. It is my honor and privilege to stand before you today to give my sixth State of the State Address. And I know for some of you, you're excited because that means you only have to listen to me two more times. But as we begin this session, 
I'm happy to report that the state of our state is the strongest it's ever been. As part of our sixth session, you know, I want to recognize, before we get started, Lieutenant Governor Matt Pinnell, President Pro Tem Greg Treat, Speaker Charles McCall, for all the hard work that they've done over the last five years. In Oklahoma history have the same four elected officials served together for all six years. And we haven't always agreed, but we've accomplished a great deal working together for the people of Oklahoma. So proud to work with you guys. Thank you so much for your service. You know, I also want to thank each of you in this room for all the hard work you do on behalf of your constituents. We can't do any of this on our own. In 1 Corinthians 12, 14, Paul talks about the body of Christ. And he's talking about referring to the church, but I think the lessons also apply here in this building. We have to work together to accomplish and move our state forward. And as we fight for the well-being of those who entrusted us with leadership, there's going to be challenges. But we can face those challenges with a vision of hope. And hope comes from neighbors walking with neighbors and churches and communities coming alongside those in need. We are so blessed in Oklahoma to, to have people who bring, who bring that hope to those who are in the most, some of the most hopeless situations. And today, I want to highlight Gail and Mike Priest. They are founders of the 99 Plus One Foundation. They renovated an old nursing home into a home for young women aging out of the foster care system. Their guiding scripture is Matthew 18, 14. Even so it is not, even so it is the will of your father which is in heaven that not one of these little ones should perish. They truly have a heart for the Lord and they are teaching young women that their future can be better than their present. The women that they care for are some of the most at risk for human trafficking. Send me legislation that further protects our most vulnerable populations from those who seek to exploit them. We have Gail and Mike, they're here with us today, and we're so proud to have you in our state. Would you please stand up? Hope is not a speech or a government program, and that's why we started BeANeighbor.org to connect people in need with churches and nonprofits in their community. Hope is a science that can be taught, and hope emerges when you can see a path forward. I'm grateful to my wife, Sarah, who started Hope Rising Oklahoma, and because of her efforts to highlight and teach the science of hope, Oklahoma is the nation's first hope-centered state. And now, people from around the country are starting to take notice. Thank you, Sarah, for standing with me for the last 25 years and being such an inspiration to so many Oklahomans. I love you so much. Hope comes from hard work because we know that we are designed by our Creator to work to provide for our families and to contribute to society. You know, it comes from teaching our young people that their future can be bright and you can accomplish anything you set your mind to do. So what is our job as state leaders? To create more government programs or to get government out of the way? Excessive government intervention encourages people to look to government programs instead of personal responsibility. There's a school of thought called the success sequence. 
that really outlines three simple steps to combat poverty. Number one, graduate from high school. Number two, get a job. Number three, get married before having kids. That's it. Those three things are a surefire way to keep families out of poverty. That's why we need strong families teaching values in the state of Oklahoma. We are living in the most fatherless generation in our history. In 1970, just 10% of kids were born out of wedlock. Today, that st statistic is staggering. Nearly 40% of kids are born to single mothers. Single mothers are five times more likely to be in poverty than two-parent families. We know that the best preventer of poverty is a married mom living and married parents living in, a, in the home. So we became the first state in the nation to declare Family Month this past November. That's the culture we're promoting here in Oklahoma, and we know it works. In 2019, I addressed this body for the very first time, and I laid out a vision to make Oklahoma top 10 in everything that we do. And I said, the Oklahoma turnaround starts right now, and we are well on our way. We have gotten government out of the way. We've allowed families and businesses to thrive. We've revolutionized our education system creating more options for parents and students while also investing more in our teachers and our public schools than ever before. We've cut excessive regulations and made it easier for businesses to navigate state government. Since then, it has become even more clear to me Government is not the answer. In the last five years, we've had record revenue growth, the lowest unemployment, and record savings. We are top 10 in real GDP growth. We're number six in lowest cost of living. We're number eight in energy affordability. We have, in Oklahoma, an energy advantage because we're promoting our bedrock industries of oil and natural gas. We're also pioneering new forms of energy, and now we're number three in the country in wind energy production. We're securing the critical mineral supply chain right here in Oklahoma. And now we are top ten in people moving to the great state of Oklahoma. People are now looking at Oklahoma as the example of a shining city on a hill. I want each of you and all of us in this room to take a moment to consider what is possible in Oklahoma over the next 20 years. The Oklahoma you want your children and your grandchildren to live in. Do we want a state that is stuck in a boom-to-bust cycle? Or do we want prosperity and growth like we've experienced over the last five years. When I stop to think about it, think about what Oklahoma looks like in 20 years, here's what I see. I see people moving here from all over the country so they can be part, they can keep more of their hard-earned money thanks to our 0% income tax. I see entrepreneurs flocking here, and we are the business headquarters capital of the world. Because of our energy advantage, we're the manufacturing, the AI, and the data center capital of the world. Our schools, our colleges, our universities are teaching kids how to think, not what to think. And students from all over the country are coming to Oklahoma to take part in the free flow of ideas. Our flagship universities have each grown to over 40,000 students, and they're the premier think tanks in their field. I see Oklahomans who take seriously the commandment to care 
for the widow and the orphan. I see a state where family values are foundational. I see a state where our communities are safe and the Oklahoma standard is alive and well and our state is thriving. But we can't let success make us complacent and forget what made the Oklahoma dream possible, which is free enterprise and individual liberties, not more government programs. Ladies and gentlemen, now is our time to shine. If we're a top 10 state, all boats will rise. Education, infrastructure, healthcare, quality of life. It's not that complicated. The economy is gonna follow the path of least resistance. Our job is to make Oklahoma the state where it is easiest to start and grow a business. So let's talk about how to get there. To accomplish our vision, and to create the most business-friendly state where freedom and opportunity abound for every single person, a top 10 state for generations to come. We need to put, we need to limit the growth of government. We need, uh, we cannot keep putting uh, more burdens on our taxpayers. Kevin O'Leary from the Shark Tank came to, to visit Oklahoma a couple weeks ago. And as he explores places to make new investments, he says he would never invest in states like California, New York, because of their overregulation and their taxes. Oklahoma has the business environment he is looking to tap into. To be the best state for business and attract top-level CEOs, we need to keep pushing business-friendly policies and reducing burdensome regulations. I'm calling on the legislature to take a page out of Delaware and Texas's playbook. And let's set up a system of courts specifically designed to address business disputes. Okay, businesses need assurances that disputes will be adjudicated by courts with expertise in business law. Next, I'm calling on local governments to join us in the effort to be the most business-friendly state in the nation. If our local governments are levying huge permitting fees or delaying projects, it will chill investments and cause companies to look elsewhere. We have to match our competition, Dallas and Kansas City and Denver and Houston, to make Oklahoma the business headquarters capital of the world. We're going to be inviting energy companies to come here and join the ranks of Devon and Williams and Continental and One Oak. We want more retail giants like Hobby Lobby and Brahms and Quick Trip to call Oklahoma home. We want to keep building our aerospace and our defense industry, uh, like companies like American Airlines and Boeing and Lockheed Martin. We want to secure the critical mineral supply chain and loosen China's grip on these technologies. I know we can do that right here from our backyard. We already have companies like Blue Whale, Rare, Rare Earth USA and Stardust. They're setting up shop and they're part of that critical su mineral supply chain we need for our national defense. If we get our regulations right with our low cost of energy, our central location, our strong workforce, Oklahoma is the perfect place for new industries looking for a home. You know, each new industry is part of something great in our state. In Oklahoma, we say we feed the world, we fuel the world, and we defend freedoms around the world. But let's make sure we have a sustainable government budget to solidify our prosperity for years to come. Listen to this. 
New York, they have 19.8 million people. And their annual budget is $233 billion a year. Florida, one of the fastest growing states, it's actually bigger than New York with 22 million people. Their annual budget is half that, about $116 billion a year. Florida doesn't have an income tax. New York is at 10.9%. Last year, I called on the legislature to cut the personal income tax from 4.75% to 3.99%. I've called three special sessions to try and give Oklahomans a pay raise. Instead, our reoccurring expenses grew last year by over $1.14 billion. And that doesn't include one-time expenses like ARPA. You know, with record savings and surpluses, I'm asking this all, if not now, then when? In the 1990s, we were at a 7% income tax. So I'm renewing my call. Let's get us Oklahoma back on the path to zero. You've heard me say year after year, we don't need more taxes, we need more taxpayers. Two years ago, we cut a quarter point from the individual tax rate, and we lowered business tax by two full percentage points. Since then, revenue collections have increased by $1.5 billion. That's been the trend after every tax cut we've passed. So I'll sign any tax cut that comes to my desk. Because as we have growth, it should be automatic to return excess to the taxpayers, not to seek out bigger government programs. If more government spending was the answer, Florida would be falling apart. The opposite is true. It's states like New York and California that are falling apart. They're facing huge, massive budget crises. And people are moving here every single day from states like California because they see opportunity and they see freedoms and they see they can keep more of their hard-earned money. It's not tax cuts that will get us in trouble. It's the unrestricted growth of government. I'm not, I'm, that's why I'm calling for flat budgets across government this year. To be clear, I'm not advocating for cutting core services. What I am advocating for is a sustainable amount of growth where we are funding, we are funding our needs, not our wants. Listen. There is never a shortage of new programs or someone pitching a good idea. In politics, you're only criticized for saying no. It's easy to feel like the wind is at our, at our back and we're leading when we're always saying yes. But it's our job as leaders to make the tough decisions now for the future prosperity of Oklahoma. A strong economy is essential to be in the most business-friendly state. But we also have to have an education system that meets our workforce needs. Thanks to everybody in this room, or almost everybody, we led the nation by passing the revolutionary parental choice tax credit last year. Now, students and parents, they have more options than ever. Because we know God gave kids to their parents, not to the government.
Emily McDonald, she's an Edmund mom of three, and she sent her kids to their zip code school. Her oldest child is thriving in public schools. Her second child, a boy with autism, he faces struggles as well, but he has also gotten the support he needs at his school. But her younger daughter, she came home from school crying every single day because of the way other students treated her as she stood up for her brother with autism. Emily had recently lost her husband and was raising these three children on her own. She saw her daughter starting to fall behind academically because of the bullying she was experiencing. And on a single income, she didn't know how she'd be able to afford to send her daughter to another school. The tax credit program was in, it, in the works, so she took a leap of faith and she enrolled her daughter in a private Christian school, praying that they would be approved for the tax credit. Well, I am happy to report her daughter is thriving in her new school. In just half a school year, she has jumped three grade levels in reading. Emily is with us today, and I wanted to recognize her and her daughter. Would you please stand up? so many reasons parents may choose a different school that isn't their neighborhood school and it's our job to make sure they have that freedom you know looking forward let's focus on opening the door to more workforce oriented schools so that every kid in Oklahoma is college ready or they're career ready Let's empower community leaders to start new, innovative schools that are molded to the needs of our state and prepare our students for the future workforce. We want more schools that prepare kids for the workforce, like Christo Ray, Dove Science Academy, or the Norman Aviation Academy. These high schools focus on career training instead of only focusing on college. The Norman Aviation Academy, it's a public school that gives students hand-on experience in the aviation industry. You know, students can work towards their pilot's license or their technical certificates in aviation maintenance, and they can leave school with great jobs with aviation companies right here in the state of Oklahoma. Christo Ray, it requires kids to intern one day a week at different companies so they gain valuable work experience. Let's have more of these schools and be number one in the nation in charter schools. <laughs> Especially when we're already proving that they work so well. Oklahoma is top 10 in charter school performance. Not only that, Not only that, Oklahoma ranks number one in the nation, number one in the nation for smallest racial performance gaps in our charter schools. So why are there still barriers for charter schools to use vacant school buildings? Let's put some of these vacant school facilities to use and get more high-performing charter schools up and running, especially in areas with poor-performing public schools. More schools, more innovation, more freedoms. Send me legislation that paves the way for more charter schools and gives students more options. Additionally, I want to empower our colleges and our universities to be the very, very best in the nation. And to be the best, we need to shift our focus to outcome-based higher education models and, and stop subsidizing institutions with low enrollment and low graduation rates. Technology has transformed the way we do higher education. 
So we can't keep relying on 20th century education models to bring our students into the future workforce. You know, each college and university needs to focus in on the subjects they are best at and become the premier institutions in their area. Send me legislation that incentivizes models that fulfill our state's workforce needs. I also want our regents to focus on consolidating colleges and universities that aren't meeting this standard. In Oklahoma, education freedom is for every single student at every single level. We cannot be the best state for businesses and have the greatest education system and the greatest universities, but if we don't have safe communities, nobody's going to want to live here. So I want to be clear, Oklahoma is a law and order state. We support our law enforcement. We punish criminals. We protect our citizens. I want to put criminals on notice. You're not welcome here. You will serve time. We also believe in fair sentences. And we believe in second chances. I knew I'd get the Democrats going in a second. We've worked hard to make sure we're prosecuting crimes and rehabilitating those with substance abuse and mental health struggles. And we're focusing on eliminating barriers for those who have served their time. With the efforts like the Sarah Stitt Act and our drug, drug court system, we're now number two lowest in the nation in recidivism rates. Now we need to limit fines, fees, and court costs to only what is needed for restitution. We, we need to address civil asset forfeiture. It's 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 crazy to me that somebody can be pulled over have their cash and their truck taken for an alleged crime, get acquitted of that crime, but never get their property back. That isn't fair, and we need to make sure that's not happening in the state of Oklahoma. In 2022, in 2022, when I addressed this chamber, I said we were going to focus on our state's marijuana industry and we were going to get it back in line, thanks to a lot of you in this room. At its peak, reports showed somewhere between 12 to 14,000 licensed marijuana businesses, including many with links to criminal organizations from China and Mexico and Russia. Through the enforcement actions of Donnie Anderson at OBN, and Adria Berry and her team at OMMA. Oklahoma has gone from having the reputation as the Wild West of weed to now being viewed as having some of the most effective enforcement and regulatory oversight in the nation. Licenses are down now 76%.
we have to keep bad actors like the drug cartels out of the state of Oklahoma. And that starts with securing our country's southern border. I have been, I've been very vocal about my support of Texas and Governor Abbott as they fight to secure our southern border and put pressure on the Biden administration to enforce laws. And I will continue to offer the assistance of the Oklahoma National Guard because we know that if we don't have a secure border, every single state is a border state. Let's take a moment now to recognize the service of those in our National Guard under the leadership of Major General Tommy Mancino. Many have answered the call of duty and deployed to the southern border of Texas and to Kenya and to Djibouti. We're so proud of their bravery and their commitment to serving our state and our nation. As I talk to people around the state, they tell me that they want a state government that works efficiently, treats them fairly, and protects their fundamental rights. Many Oklahomans I talk to want clarity about who has authority to do what in our state. And that's because today our state is dealing with the fallout from the McGirt decision. It's a decision that has rocked our state and caused division where previously there was none. But I know there's a path forward. Because of the success we've, we found negotiating compacts with the Apaches, the Chickasaws, the Citizen Potawatomi, and the Wyandotte governments just over the last few weeks. But we still need clarity. Three years ago, in my state of the state, I asked a few questions stemming from the Supreme Court's decision. In 2021, I asked, do tribal members living in Tulsa and the eastern part of our state pay income tax? Today, there are tribal governments supporting a woman named Strobel in her lawsuit before the Oklahoma Supreme Court so she can be exempted from paying state income taxes. In 2021, I asked, who regulates agriculture, water, energy? Today, there are tribal governments trying to stand in the way of our State Department of Agriculture's ability to issue necessary permits to farmers to work on their private lands. In 2021, I asked, what is the state's ability to enforce laws? There are tribal governments who supported a man named Hooper as he fought against Tulsa Police's authority to enforce traffic laws. In 2021, I asked, who had the authority to make arrests and prosecute people? Today, we're dealing with the fallout from the conflict at the Okmulgee County Jail, where due to disagreements about who has authority over that part of our state, there was a standoff as a Creek tribal officer tried to arrest a county correctional officer in his jail. Three years after McGirt, we are still operating under a confusing and conflicting patchwork of jurisdiction across our state. It is imperative that we clarify our law enforcement relationships immediately. That's why I created the One Oklahoma Task Force to come up with cross-deputizations and jail agreements. I hope that this task force can work to find a solution that protects the safety of all four million Oklahomans, regardless of their race or their heritage. And I hope the tribes will choose to participate. In 2021, I said, it is critical while embracing the tribal heritage of many Oklahomans that we do not lose the fact 
we do not lose sight of the fact that we're all Oklahomans. We can't be a state that operates two different sets of rules, especially based on race. Here's the deal. Things are different in Oklahoma than they are in places like Arizona. Arizona has the Navajo Reservation. And it is true tribal members who live on the Navajo Reservation do not pay taxes to the state of Arizona. But here's what's also true. The state of Arizona doesn't build roads on the reservation. They don't fund hospitals. They don't fund public schools or airports on the reservation. They don't send the Arizona Highway Patrol to enforce laws on the reservation. And there are tribal governments who want Tulsa and eastern Oklahoma to look like the Navajo Reservation. But eastern Oklahoma is different than the Navajo Reservation. And we have better outcomes for our tribal populations across the board. We've operated as one Oklahoma since statehood. And it's how we're going to operate for as long as I'm governor. Stand with me to protect one unified Oklahoma. Before I wrap up, I want to challenge each of us in this room to consider two things. One, who are we allowing to influence the laws that we make? I love how Boone Pickens put it. You know, he said when people try to influence him, he would ask himself, do they have a vested interest in what they're trying to push? Who are we letting influence us here in this building? Are special interests dominating? Or are the interests of all four million Oklahomans guiding our decisions? And the second question is what legacy are we gonna leave the future Oklahoma? We need to be working for the next generation, not the next election. Are we leaving Oklahoma better than we found it? Are we willing to risk everything to do the right thing? Or will we risk the dream of Oklahoma's future for personal gain? Ronald Reagan said this, there are no easy answers, but they're simple answers. We must have the courage to do what we know is morally right. What are we doing today to protect this Oklahoma we love for our children and our grandchildren? If that isn't our sole focus, we are here for the wrong reasons. Governing should be about making the tough decisions, not what's easy or convenient. And as I conclude today, I want to declare, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I'm I'm calling on our businesses to serve God in the marketplace, our churches to serve God and people in their communities, our government officials to serve God by acting righteously and serving without partiality. We're making sure the next generation can live out their American dream, their Oklahoma dream. So let's go. God bless you, and may God continue to bless the great state of Oklahoma. Thank you very much. Have a great session.